Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have done several episodes talking about student loan reform. The first one we did, I never thought it would happen because it was so haphazardly done. And then they did it, and then we talked a little bit about that, and now they've undone it? Well, the courts have. So we're going to talk a little bit about where the student loan forgiveness program seems to be in uh, December of 2022. And my guest today, nobody better uh, equipped to talk about this than Nitu Arnold. She is uh, the author of a new uh, piece in Newsweek, A Legislative Agenda to Fix the Student Loan System. And she's a senior research associate at the National Association of Scholars and a Young Voices contributor. Thank you so much for joining me, Nitu. Yes, thank you for having me. Can you tell me what the, uh, what was it, the uh, National Association of Scholars, like in my mind, I think you work at the Game of Thrones Citadel, just surrounded by books. Like what, what do you do there, the National Association of Scholars? We do enjoy our books, but the National Association of Scholars is an organization committed to higher education reform. Uh, we're also a membership organization for scholars and other people who would like to see uh, education reform. And so we produce a lot of reports on issues that are important. I focused a lot on financial issues and higher education. How did you get interested in that subject? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I started to see uh, a lot of problems when I was in college. I attended Cornell University uh, from 2014 to 2018. And I just saw that there was quite a bit of bias and a lack of intellectual diversity. And so I was very interested in the subject of higher education in general, and then specifically with the cost of higher education. I think it's such a big issue today. You know, the cost of education since 1980 has more than doubled. And uh, I know when I was attending or when I was uh, applying to colleges, cost was something that was very important at the front and center. And I knew I did not want to go into debt. I wanted to avoid it as far as possible. And those were the kind of decisions my family and I were looking into. So, of course, when debt forgiveness was announced, it was quite a shocker. It was almost like, why did we spend so much time trying to avoid going into debt? I might as well have taken out a couple thousand dollars of loans that would have been forgiven. But obviously, what's happening now with the courts, uh, you know, it, it puts a lot of people in limbo. Yeah, I do. I do have some sympathy for people that got their loans forgiven or thought that they were forgiven and now are not going to be forgiven. Uh, you got to remember your uh, your uh, schoolhouse rock with the bill sitting on the steps, right? You have to remember that Congress has to pass these sort of things and the courts usually stop it. But it's got to be a little bit crushing. I mean, have you seen any stories out there of people who are in that situation of like, am I getting it forgiven? I thought I got it forgiven. Or even I know some people got the money already. Do they have to pay that back? How's this going to work out now that the courts have stepped in and said, no, this isn't going to happen? Right. There's so much confusion. And I know of people who are still trying to figure out exactly what's going on. I know at the time when Biden had the Biden administration had announced uh, debt forgiveness, there were some people who had already spent the summer working extra hours just to pay off their loans. And they didn't know if they were eligible for debt forgiveness. And it, the whole situation has been messy uh, in terms of how this will play out in the courts. You know, I think the big challenge for a lot of these lawsuits was finding some sort of standing to show that 
they they could hold the Biden administration accountable. And so many lawsuits kept getting uh, turned away. But I think now that a Texas federal judge ruled it unconstitutional, and then they got the backing from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Louis, I think they're figuring out the standing issue. And so uh, I, I don't want to say anything uh, super permanent right now, but it, it does look like there's a chance that this could get uh, overturned. And of course, the Biden administration has to fight this in court. I mean, this is uh, this is a promise that they made. And again, so many people are probably confused. But I think this is the exact reason why we can't try to fix uh, issues of college affordability by just passing blanket forgiveness, especially through executive authority. Yeah, I mean, I want to assume best intentions. That's the nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, you know, never trust a politician when they make promises in an election year. Um, do you do you think that they intended for this to go through? Like, is this just sort of a I mean, maybe this is un- unfair to question it and you can decline to answer it. But uh, it just seems to me to have been obvious that the courts might strike it down. Why go through with this and give people false hope? I mean, I do think to a certain degree, there are probably people working in the Department of Education who really were strong believers in this. I mean, they were planning for months. They, they were having documents ready, ready to go even before Biden had announced partial debt forgiveness. So I do think they were trying to prepare for this. They, they were serious about it. And even if they weren't, I do think we need to take this seriously uh, because the debt forgiveness conversation isn't going away. Uh, you know, even if we went through this partial debt forgiveness, which just as a reminder, uh, it was going to be $10,000 of forgiveness for non-Pell Grant recipients and twenty thousand up to $20,000 of forgiveness for Pell Grant recipients. So uh, it, it, we, we were going to come back to this conversation because uh, the other side is obviously more empowered to ask for full debt forgiveness. That's what they really want. I mean, full debt forgiveness free college, those are still on the table. Uh, The fact that debt forgiveness isn't going through right now, uh, you know, of course, people are going to be upset about that, the ones who benefit from it. And uh, even if debt forgiveness goes through, we're going to have to address this issue again, probably around 2028, when the debt portfolio returns back to the current $1.6 trillion in outstanding student loan debt. So, so what happens then? Because it, it explain that to me. Like I have no idea what you're talking about. Please. Um, when you say uh, what, like what R- returns the portfolio returns to the full full thing. Oh, so right now, so before debt forgiveness, we were in 1.6 trillion dollars of student loan debt. When we forgive some of those loans, it's going to reduce the portfolio. But of course. Uh, people are going to continue to borrow. It's not like we said we're, we're stopping students from borrowing. Gotcha. Anymore. We still have a broken system. Yes, exactly. Okay. I, of course, understood exactly what you meant. But, you know, for everybody else, um, now you've, you know, you have uh, written a, a great article and in Newsweek, of all places, congratulations, that's quite an accomplishment. Um, but you talk a little bit about the cause so you talk about that broken system and how we'll just, even if you forgive it, we'll return back to it. 
Um, we've done other shows on the morality of all this, and so I don't want to get into that because what I love about your article is you give me some history and some background. I'll put it in the show notes for people who want to read through it. But um, talk about there's lots of blame to go around for why student loans are so expensive now. Can you highlight some of those reasons uh, on all the different sides? Right. So a, a lot of the situation we're in is because college has become so expensive. And when you ask people why, like when you ask them, why has college become so expensive? You'll hear a lot of different answers. Um, you know, some people will, especially the higher education establishment, they will blame uh, decreasing state funds for the reasons for increasing the costs. Uh, some will blame increasing professor salaries and uh, others will say, well, college has just become that much more valuable. And so that's why it's increased in cost, which is, again, a rather debatable statement at this point. Uh, what I believe to be the case and what several studies show is that the federal student aid system uh, has given people the opportunity, of course, to go to college and to go somewhat affordably. But at the same time, it's also made it more expensive because colleges now have this effective subsidy. There's no incentive to decrease the cost, especially when so many students are attending so that they can get a good job. And this is on part of the blame goes on employment regulations that are there. And so the combination of this federal subsidy that never goes away and then increased demand for college, as in increasing number of students who are going to college, is uh, contributing to the rising costs. And I do want to point this out that uh, I actually go through many of the theories of increasing tuition, increasing costs in my report for the National Association of Scholars called Priced Out. I actually have a section that goes through several theories. I've only listed a couple, but several of the theories, we go through some of the research, we evaluate it. So I would recommend your listeners to check out that report. Yeah, I will put that in the show notes. Um, what are some other things that are in the report that we might find? Tell us a little bit about the report and um, why we should read it. Yeah, so it really goes through how college became so expensive but we don't just go through the numbers. We also look at issues like uh, administrative bloat and where that money is going. But also I incorporate interviews from college administrators, parents, students trying to understand how they made the decisions surrounding their college education, what administrators are thinking when they make certain spending decisions. And I think, uh, you know, my favorite section in the report is actually uh, we, we just compile a whole student interview. They they uh, they give their advice uh, based on the mistakes that they made. And that's something I think I really appreciate. Uh, they they explain their reasons for why they attended school, which oftentimes differed from what the parents were thinking. So parents were often thinking about costs and long term you know, job stability, those kind of things. Students were more concerned about, uh, you know, the fear of missing out, whether that was missing the college parties, missing out on social mobility, which is what college has become, a pathway for social mobility at this point, and uh, to a certain degree, like even an elite status. Um, you know, for some of them, they were considering the programs that they attended and the scholarships that that they would get. And so it was interesting to contrast what the students were thinking 
and what the parents were thinking. And so I think that's an interesting part of our report. Uh, it, it includes, so the parents and student interviews, I think I interviewed around 50, 50 of them. Very, very cool. So I, I recognize, uh, so I was just looking, you know, Peter Wood um, is somebody that I know from National Review and some of his writings. Tell us a little bit about the organization of the National National Association of Scholars and the purpose of it. Uh, you touched on it a little bit, but what's the history? Why why did somebody wake up and say, you know, we really need to to found this, I don't know if you call yourself a think tank or organization, essentially, to advocate for what mission? What is the mission of the organization? Right. So NIS was founded in the 1980s with the goal of challenging some of the political correctness on college campuses, especially when it came to, quote, diversity, which wasn't so much about diversity of thought as much as it was about just diversity of skin color. Um, and as we know, like diversity of thought, um, you know, it doesn't really matter what your skin color is. You could have, um, like, anyway, um, that's kind of how it started. And we, we care about academic freedom. We support professors who have been ousted by their universities uh, just for stating um, facts that are considered controversial nowadays, like especially based on race or sex or like even research. And so we're really supposed to be a resource uh, of support for academics, but we also, you know, nowadays we're more... Um, we're, we're venturing more into our reports. And so, uh, you know, I focused more on financial issues, but I've also covered topics like Middle East studies departments. We have people who are looking at social justice education in America, um, DEI. That's, that's a very big thing right now. Uh, we just had a report released by a colleague of mine, uh, looks at DEI in STEM departments. So, uh, we're really trying to dig in and see what's going on in our higher education institutions and provide uh, solutions. Very cool. So let's hop back to student loans. Uh, you know, what are some of the solutions out there that I'm not I don't know what your philosophical background is. A lot of the folks that I talk to on the program through the Young Voices program tend to lean libertarian like me, but you're just like, I'm not getting in all that mess. Um, but we tend to be a little more free market, a little bit uh, smaller government uh, types. What are some solutions out there that that might offend our sensibilities and why won't they work? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of solutions being thrown out there right now. I think if you're talking specifically about, I guess, the libertarian sensibilities or free market, what might offend those sensibilities? I don't think this is just about libertarians, even just conservatives. Um, I there are a couple of uh, solutions that are being thrown about. You know, one is uh, just getting rid of student loan interest. Uh, that's one that I'm seeing gaining a lot of traction. Uh, it's had bipartisan support. Well, uh, I think a Republican has presented a bill on this and Democrats have, of course, presented a bill on just either lowering interest or getting rid of it. Uh, the reason I don't think that's a good idea is especially if you oppose debt forgiveness because it is about uh, it is about money that's being spent that that benefits a few people. It's everybody, the taxpayers are paying for just a few people. Um, 
reducing interest rates or even making it zero is still a cost. Um, I think something to mention is that, uh, like, first of all, during the pandemic payment pause, uh, which it's now extended, but uh, from when it was in 2020 to now, it's estimated to cost $155 billion. And those who benefited from uh, the 0% interest were those who will make more over the course of their lifetimes. And so those are the, those are doctors and lawyers. Um, so it, it's not like the, these kind of programs don't have a cost. Um, the second thing to mention is that I think some people are going to see the federal student loan interest rates and think, wow, that's very high, 5 to 8% on different kinds of federal student loans. That seems very high, but that assumes, like again, that assumes the interest rate is very high, but we have to remember that the federal government is not making any profit off of these loans. In fact, a government accountability office report found that we're losing, we lost $200 billion from the federal student loan program. Wait, so, wait, who, who, so taxpayers lost and yes. why? Um, it wasn't profitable. They weren't, they weren't able to get the funds. Um, and so I think this is an example where, uh, you know, that interest rate might seem high, but it's, it's trying to keep up with inflation. It's trying to recoup those costs. And then of course, uh, something else to consider is when you make uh, interest rates 0%, we're making it easier for people to simply get loans. And that isn't really addressing the root, pro- the root problem. You know, not everybody benefits from federal student loans uh, in the long term. If we're giving people loans to enter fields where they're not going to recoup the cost because they went in a low return on investment field, then it seems like that wasn't a very good public investment. And I would think that if taxpayers are going to fund it, they should see uh, something in return. Yeah, which leads us to your proposal, which I I have some skepticism on. So I want to hear, I I want you to sell it to me, need to. Um, What what is your proposal? What would you like to see the change? How would you change it? I make you emperor of student loans for the next 50 years. Well, I think the obvious solution is conditioning federal student loans to academic merit and the return on investment of a degree. And it needs to be both. It can't be one or the other. It needs to be both. Um, I want to first go over the the return on investment. So, again, as mentioned earlier, when this is a public investment, we should see outcomes and I would think that if we only offer federal student loans to those who are going to enter fields which have a high ROI, then they're going to be able to repay those student loans. And this the debt crisis should not be an issue. But it's not just important what kind of field the student enters. It's also important that they are able to uh, complete the degree. And there are several studies out there that uh, confirm that you know we can ask or we can um, predict uh, a student's capability of doing well in school in uh, you know graduating just based on their academic merit. There's a GPA, their standardized test scores, and so I think we need 
to it's not just enough just to look at the return on investment because it could be that a student has the intention to enter a high ROI field, but if they don't do well, then there are a couple of options. You know, one could be they just drop out of college, which means they get all of the debt, but none of the benefits of the degree. The second thing could be that they actually enter. So they had the intention of entering a high ROI field, but then they switched to an easier major. And typically, uh, there was one study that I cited in there. It looked at how a lot of people switched from STEM fields to the humanities, and many of the humanity fields are sometimes they're easier. Not all of them are easier, just to be clear, but some of them are easier. And then some of that, uh, they they don't even have a good ROI, and so the student ends up uh, taking on unexpected costs. Okay, so are you arguing that the government, or the federal government specifically, and taxpayers, therefore, uh, uh, should prioritize certain degrees over other degrees? Like, uh, doesn't that sort of create a caste system in the higher in higher ed? I mean, I I I wouldn't have been able to uh, to afford to go to college without student loans. I went to get a history degree. I had very poor. Uh, <laughs> academics. Uh, I did better the second time I went, twenty years later. But the th- that's one thing that concerns me is just sort of the federal government treating different categories in different ways. Is that a a, a fair criticism? Am I hearing you correctly? Uh, yes. So essentially, it, so again, this would this would change based on the demands based on what our society needs. And again, this is public funding. So the idea is that if we're going to fund students through public funds, then there should be public outcomes. I think if a student is entering a degree and there isn't a, it's not really, we, we don't have a uh, increased need for that degree. To me, that seems like a personal reason for attending college. Now, I do want to clarify that, uh, of course, with this kind of reform, I would want alternatives to higher education because so many people are going through college, um, not necessarily just learning for learning's sake, but because they need that credential so that they can get a job. And there are many jobs out there that do not require the knowledge obtained through a college degree. And so it really should be that public funds, if if we're going to have that around, it should encourage people to enter fields that we either have a shortage in or they can recoup the costs. And it would actually discourage people from entering the fields where they're probably going to rack up a lot of debt. Like, again, I don't know if it makes sense to encourage, I, I use the word encourage because that's how I see these loans, to encourage people to uh, get an art history degree, but then they're not going to be able to pay it back. That's what I think is irresponsible from the government to encourage people to just attend any field without looking at it long term. Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, I work in radio. I've worked in radio for 20 years and podcasting, and I didn't really need a degree for that. And my entire education was sort of geared towards you've got to go to college. We don't really care what you're going to go to college for. You don't even really need the degree. You just need the paper. Otherwise, you're going to make $45,000 instead of $60,000. So just go and just figure it out while you're in college, which is sort of an 
in my mind, a very irresponsible way to handle it. Like, it, and it wasn't just my parents saying that because my parents were just kind of listening to what guidance counselors said, who all said, "You got to go to college. You got to go to college. That's that's your path." You know, you don't really need to go to college for editing audio. Um, now, I will say my skill set. Uh, I'm I'm playing catch up massively to figure out how to do what you're doing at you know, in your 20s, which is researching and producing, you know, well thought out pieces, um, as opposed to, you know, but something like radio and a liberal arts degree, there's not that much demand and there's not that much need for the amount of education that I got, in my opinion. Clear. So let's say there was a situation where we needed more history majors, maybe we need more history professors. Uh, This kind of idea that I have would encourage people to uh, to get loans. Like it, it would be easier for those people to get loans if there was a demand, if there was a need for history professors, for example. So it is somewhat flexible. It's not going to say, well, we we're demanding STEM degrees now, so we're all we're only going to fund STEM here and now forever. That's not how this works. It's going to be flexible based on the demands. Yes. Okay. So here's the the other problem that I have with your solution. It's the problem of bureaucracy. Uh, The bureaucracies are slow. Who do you put in charge to make those kind of decisions? Because, you know, as you've mentioned about your own organization, the DEI initiatives, they're going to say that we need more, um, you know, lesbian ceramic art history majors, right? Like, uh, to be pejorative. Um who who makes the decision on what this what society needs and how do you how do you keep that from being an ideological exercise in and of itself? That's a good question. I, I feel like I'm gonna have to put more thought into that. So I'm gonna give you my initial reaction to that right now because uh, I do think you bring up a good point. It is a serious concern. Uh, again, I I do think this is something. For right now, the Department of Education would probably take care of. I do think we could decrease some of the ideological components just by having a formula. So the formula would consider things like very mundane things like what is the student's what is the potential salary for entering into this field? Uh, what is the academic or what what is what is the uh, uh, what is the student's SAT or ACT score or whatever standardized testing we have. Uh, to me, those kind of areas, uh, I, I don't think they have to be ideological, uh, ideologically driven. Of course, this formula does become a problem when we start to introduce things like, well, uh, how much do you value uh, diversity, equity, inclusion? You would, but I don't think such a formula would, I, I'm not sure if that would be feasible. So that would be my initial reaction to that right now. Yeah, you could do it on GPA um, or, you know, on other metrics that colleges use. And you could use mean salaries based on labor statistics, I guess. Um, But I I think the central fundamental challenge that I would recommend, you know, that I'd love to have you back and, and hear your answer on is who decides what's a need, right? Like, and do experts like the ventilator problem during the pandemic experts all agree that we needed a lot of ventilators and, you know, all these different, you know, ideologies came together and said, we've got to in, in, you know, mass produce ventilators. 
and then they kind of got it wrong. So th- there's a little bit of the proposal that runs into Hayek's knowledge problem that I'd love to hear explained because I do think that you're on to something in that instead of treating everybody equitably, let's put a little merit behind it because, you know, people like me should probably not have gotten student loans. I'm just being honest. You should have gotten my student loans. <laughs> studying history you're probably more knowledgeable in that area (laughs) i don't have anything against you for that or anything personally against anybody for that but this comes down to i mean it's been the constant debate of what do we fund do we fund merit or do we fund need and i've seen this time and time again and it it just seems very clear that we would be better off funding merit and of course this is just one idea. I, I did think you brought up a good question. I'd, I'd like to think about that more. You know, I think I gave my initial reaction, but. Um, well, I know. think to, to, to go into maybe go into following need, because I think there is a big push to fund economic need to to, you know, fix very real systemic poverty issues and make sure that, you know, kids in low economic situations get funding to go to college because that's the lifeline to to change their path right uh and a lot of times that overlooks people who are merited i mean can you is there a big debate about that or is that sort of you know no it is a big debate but i think uh what's wrong here is that we still make the college degree an expensive barrier for people to have a good life you know i think somebody who's growing up in poverty would be better off spending their crucial time and money uh, and their energy uh, getting that job experience, especially when it it could probably be done either through an apprenticeship. It could, uh, you know, another idea is to simply shorten the four year degree, you know, for certain, for certain degrees, they really don't need to be four plus years long. It could be two to three years. Um, So, but I think presenting, this barrier of the college degree as an expensive barrier, you know, that to me seems uh, that that to me seems like the problem here. And it becomes this thing where everybody needs to go because that that becomes a bare minimum for employers. So that's that's what I'm really trying to get at here. And I think when we just focus on need, uh, we kind of overlook many of these other issues. Yeah, it's a great point. It's we're stuck in a system that is decades or generations old and, you know, maybe two years is good. All right. Shameless self-promotion time. Uh, you're very bright. I've enjoyed our conversation, uh, conversation a lot. So, and I'm sure our listeners would love to follow you. Where can they do so and find out more of your work? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at N E E T U underscore Arnold. They can also follow uh, the national association of scholars. You can just visit us at our website at www.nas.org. All right. Thank you so much. Need to Arnold. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Yes. Thank you. And thank you listeners. If you got something out of this, please share it with your friends. That's the best way that you can help your favorite podcasts content creators, authors like Need to Grow. So we just ask that you go out there and spread the word a little bit and uh, also support us on Patreon. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show.